Hi, I'm David Freudberg. We here at Humankind are trying to strike a balance to make our public radio programs available to you and also to make sure we're able to pay our production costs from office rent to staff time to studio and distribution expenses. The grants we receive from funders you hear named on our programs don't fully cover our operating costs. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep our program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of our homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. We're all kind of like teenagers driving a speeding car. We can't believe it could actually crash. No one, I think, can really get their arms around this and really think that this is going to happen. Uh, And it's a huge problem because the essential task before us all is to take action about this problem before the weapons are used. A longtime emergency room physician tries to prevent the biggest emergency imaginable. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. inevitable that his long experience as an emergency room physician would sensitize Ira Helfand to the potentially dreadful consequences of preventable accidents. And for many years, he's made an enormous commitment to averting the worst catastrophe imaginable, an outbreak of nuclear war. I'm a doctor. I go back to medical analogies. It's a little bit like a cigarette smoker. Um, Everybody stops smoking when they're told they have lung cancer. The trick is to get people to stop smoking before that happens. And when you talk to patients, it's difficult to get them to understand, especially younger patients, um, that they are actually going to kill themselves if they keep smoking. It's not impossible. And if you're good at it and if you work hard with your patient, you can do it. And you can get them to understand that this is a real danger. It's not just some fantasy someone's made up. This is going to happen to them. And then you get them to stop smoking. That's what we need to do on a global level. We have to get people to understand that this actually can happen. In fact, if we don't get rid of these weapons, it will happen someday. Dr. Helfand now practices medicine at an urgent care center in Springfield, Massachusetts. He's also co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, which won the Nobel Peace Prize. He views the world's stockpile of thousands of nuclear warheads as the greatest threat to humanity, a terrifying arsenal maintained in nine nations. There are the five that are officially recognized under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, the United States, Russia, China, Britain, and France, and then North Korea with its very small arsenal, Israel, Pakistan, and India. The world first witnessed the ferocity of these weapons of mass destruction in August 1945, when the United States dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima, then Nagasaki, Japan. Most estimates put the death toll at well over 100,000 civilians from blast, fire, and radioactivity. Bomb technology had grown horrendously more powerful by 1962, when the United States and the Soviet Union came close to a nuclear exchange during the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
and we've got 32 targets in track and 10 impacting points. I want to confirm, is this an exercise? Roger, copy. This is not an exercise. Roger, understand. Major Reinhardt, we have a massive attack against the USS at this time. ICBMs. Numerous ICBMs. Roger, understand. Over 300 missiles inbound now. The disturbing scenario of how a nuclear attack would play out in a small U.S. town was depicted in the vivid 1983 film The Day After, which drew a television audience of more than 100 million Americans. Dr. Ira Helfand. I think any reasonable person, cognizant of what these weapons will do if used, would have to come to the conclusion that they are their existence is a threat to world security and to U.S. national security, and that it has to be our highest priority to get rid of them. But there are many people in decision-making positions who believe that these weapons are actually valuable, that they protect our security. And that's the problem. If they understood what use of the weapons would do, I don't think they would hold those views, but they don't. And so they think that we can keep these weapons and use them to guarantee our security. Is it they believe that no one dares use them because that would trigger devastating retaliation and that therefore the existence of the arsenals makes it likely they won't be used? It's pretty complicated. That's one of the, th of the many threads that go into the thinking about these weapons. One line of argument is we only have these weapons to make sure they're never used. Of course, that, that's called deterrence. Um, we keep our weapons as a threat against anyone who'd use them against us. Of course, an integral part of that whole theory is the idea that we will use them if we're attacked. And we have to be able to convince a potential adversary that we will use them. And so while we say we don't want to use them, we at the same time say we are willing to use them and will use them. But the U.S. and other nuclear weapon states actually are a little bit more sinister than that, I think. We threatened to use nuclear weapons during the Korean War against China during the uh, Kumoyamatsu crisis in the late 1950s against China, during the Vietnam War. We threatened to use them during the Iranian Civil War in 1978. We threatened to use them against Saddam Hussein in Iraq in both the first and second Gulf Wars. All of these threats were against countries which did not at that time possess nuclear weapons. And we clearly were using our nuclear arsenal to achieve something that we wanted to achieve. That's in keeping with the traditional way we look at weapons. Big weapons make you stronger and let you get your way in the world. The problem with these weapons is that they're so big, they're so dangerous, that if we use them, we're going to destroy ourselves too. And that's the point which we just can't seem to get into our heads. For most of human history, carrying a bigger stick than the other guy actually made you safer. Now, if you use that stick, you die too. And that changes the whole game, and our thinking has not caught up with that reality. It also presumes that at every point in the chain of decision-making, somebody's being rational. Absolutely. Uh, and that, I believe, as you're suggesting, is not an assumption that we can really uh, accede to. Um, there is a notion that we're going to use these weapons um, in a rational way. 
if you look at the history of war, that's not the way things happen during military crises. All kinds of irrational decisions are made. People don't know what's going on in the world. They don't know what the events that they need to respond to actually are. And all kinds of bad decisions get made. And indeed, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, we came perilously close to a catastrophe. That's right. And um, that's been acknowledged by the people on both the U.S. and Russian side who were involved in that crisis. Uh, I think they were all deeply frightened and sobered when they sat down together many years after the crisis and talked about what they had actually done and how close they had come to crossing the red lines that the other side had established that would have led to nuclear war. In the fall of 1962, halfway into the Cuban Missile Crisis, President John F. Kennedy faced potentially calamitous decisions in the standoff with Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. Russian nuclear weapons had been detected within 90 miles of the United States. In a phone call on October 22nd, Kennedy consulted with his predecessor in the Oval Office, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who had commanded American troops in World War II. General, what about if the Soviet Union, uh, Khrushchev, announces uh, tomorrow, which I think he will, that if we attack Cuba that uh, it's going to be nuclear war? And uh, what's your judgment as to uh, the chances they'll fire these things off if we invade Cuba? Oh, uh, I don't believe they will. Yeah, they will. In other words, you would take that risk if the situation seems desirable. As a matter of fact, uh, what can you do? Uh, If this thing is such a uh, serious thing uh, here on our flank, that uh, we're going to be uneasy, and we know what this thing is happening now. All right. You've got to use something. Something may uh, make these people shoot them off. I just don't believe this will. The crisis ultimately abated through diplomacy, and a quarter century later, the Soviet Union collapsed. Tensions between the United States and Russia flared again in late February 2014, when Russian President Vladimir Putin sent troops and military equipment into Ukraine then annex the territory of Crimea. The next month, President Barack Obama spoke at a nuclear security summit in The Hague. Russia's actions are a problem. They don't pose the number one national security threat to the United States. Uh, I continue to be much more concerned when it comes to our security with the prospect of uh, a nuclear weapon going off in Manhattan. If nuclear war were actually waged today, What would happen? What would it look like? Would there be a mushroom cloud, as we imagine from the World War II experience? Yeah, there would be a mushroom cloud. There'd actually be lots of them. Dr. Ira Helfand. Even when New START is fully implemented in 2018, the latest treaty between the United States and Russia, each of these countries is going to have about 1,500 large nuclear warheads uh, deployed and ready for use. Uh, Most of these weapons will be anywhere from 10 to um, 50 times more powerful than the bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 10 to 50 times more powerful. That's right. And each one of these bombs, if used, is going to create a very large mushroom cloud and a very large fire and explosion beneath the cloud that destroys much of a city. Um, A study that we did back in 2002 showed that if only 300 warheads from the Russian arsenal got through to cities here in the United States, between 75 and 100 million people would be killed in the first half hour 
by this series of huge explosions and the fires that they started. Uh, in addition, the entire infrastructure of the country, the economic infrastructure, would be destroyed. And this is a very important point because, you know, we are not hunter-gatherers or subsistence farmers. In modern industrial society, we depend on an intact infrastructure to keep ourselves alive. And that would all be destroyed as well. There'd be no transportation network, there'd be no food distribution network, there'd be no public health system, there'd be no banking system, there'd be no communications. It'd all be gone. And we concluded in this report that 300 warheads getting through to the United States would kill about 100 million people promptly and create conditions which would lead over the next few months to the deaths of most of the rest of the population in the United States from starvation, from exposure to cold in the following winter, from radiation sickness and from epidemic disease. The prospect of nuclear holocaust is so bleak and demoralizing that it has given rise to very dark humor, most famously in the surrealistic 1964 film Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Peter Sellers plays U.S. President Merkin Muffley in an awkward phone call with his Soviet counterpart. Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb, the hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And... Uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Albert Einstein said we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. So what is the change in thinking that we need to address the nuclear problem? Well, I think it goes back to our whole perception that strength equals security. I think we need to understand that in the case of weapons which are so powerful that they will destroy the world, um, we cannot rely on them for our security. They are the principal threat to our security. We need to have an understanding that with regards to nuclear weapons, uh, the old way of thinking that uh, strength means safety just doesn't apply anymore. Uh, we can be strong in other ways, but we can't possess weapons which are, by their nature, capable of destroying the entire planet. Uh, we've been very slow to learn this lesson. It's quite remarkable. We're considering the long quest to prevent nuclear warfare, led in part by medical professionals, including Dr. Ira Helfand, co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. To obtain an audio download of this segment, Facing the Unthinkable with Dr. Ira Helfand, and to learn more on this theme, please visit humanmedia.org. The presence of these weapons of mass destruction cannot be regarded by anybody as desirable because the risks are just so terrible. What is your view of how 
we got here. What were the forces that propelled into existence such a catastrophically dangerous state of affairs? I think it's a combination of our belief in strength, um, a lesson which we had drummed into our national psyche by Pearl Harbor, that a country that's strong and vigilant is going to be safer. Uh, and again, at some, in some ways, this, there's tremendous validity to that argument, but it's, it's coupled also with a real arrogance about our ability to control the technological forces that we set in motion. The genie that would be released from the bottle. The genie that we thought we could control, which we can't. Uh, and this has been this, the, you know, the, the story of the arms race. Every time we score a major technological breakthrough, and most of these were pioneered by the United States, um, this was going to give us a, a, an advantage over the Soviets back during the Cold War. But it turned out that in a matter of years, the Soviets achieved the same technological breakthrough. So we built the first atomic bomb, they followed suit. We built the first hydrogen bomb, they followed suit. We built the first intercontinental ballistic missile to deliver nuclear weapons, they followed suit. We built the first missile that could carry multiple warheads, they followed suit. And every time we tried to guarantee our security by baking even more horrible and deadly weapons, it turns out all we did was provoke our enemy to make more horrible and deadly weapons. And so now we stand facing each other with these enormous arsenals that we think we can control, but if we look at the record, we know there have been many, many accidents, as well as many times when, by policy, we almost use the weapons. To walk us through some of the history of accidents. Well, th there, are, there are two different kinds of accidents. There have been accidents involving um, weapon systems that, that, that failed, uh, bombs that fell out of planes, uh, and there have been a number of those instances. The, the most terrifying took place in, 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 you know, in, in North Carolina, when the United States accidentally dropped a couple of nuclear weapons on the United States. They fortunately did not explode, but one of them came uh, extremely close. There were like eight fail-safe devices on the bomb to keep it from going off, and seven of them failed, were destroyed in the, in the uh, crash when it landed. Accidentally dropped a nuclear bomb on the United States. Yeah, it fell out of the plane. Um, we've had a number of planes carrying nuclear warheads crash, uh, one in Greenland near our, our Air Force Base at Thule, one off the coast of Spain, uh, large nuclear weapons lost during those accidents. We've had an explosion and fire inside a nuclear missile silo. Inside, This was a Titan silo in Arkansas in 1980. Um, so there have been those kinds of accidents. But the ones that I think are even scarier are the ones where we believe, because of computer problems, that we're under attack and react to that. And we know of at least five times since 1979, when either the United States or the Soviet Union, now Russia, prepared to launch a nuclear war in the mistaken belief that it was itself already under attack. Kind and, of the fail-safe scenario, fail-safe film. Yes, uh, and the most recent of these, you know, took place in 19, that we know about, took place in 1995, well after the end of the Cold War. There have probably been other incidents that are still classified, but these five are, are just enormously frightening. I mean, I, on one occasion back in 19, um, I believe this was in 79 or 80, uh, a tape was played into the main computer at the U.S. control center. And for some 10 minutes, um, the display that everyone was responding to showed a massive Soviet attack on the United States. And we responded. We scrambled uh, bombers. Uh, they, were, they were on the runway taking off. We took the, the, the hoods off of our missile silos so the missiles could be launched. We were ready to go. 
And then someone discovered, oh, wait a minute, this isn't real-time information coming in from our radar facilities. This is a training tape that's been accidentally playing in the computer. Um, this, this kind of, of accident is, you know, it's happened several times. It's, it wasn't a one-off. Because fallible human beings are at the controls. And they're presiding over fallible technology, and it's a bad combination. We assume that both our technology and ourselves will be infallible. And there is absolutely no reason to assume either of those two things. We know that they're both false. Dr. Ira Helfand calls for a complete global ban on nuclear weapons. The existential threat they pose to humanity was eventually considered by the scientists who developed the atomic bomb in the Manhattan Project during the Second World War. The project's director was J. Robert Oppenheimer, a theoretical physicist. In a TV interview broadcast in 1965, he described the scene 20 years earlier when scientists first witnessed the awe-inspiring flash of light as they tested the bomb. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. For a lot of people, nuclear Armageddon is simply unthinkable. Uh, and thus, many of us do not devote a lot of time to thinking about it. And I'd like to hear your impressions of the psychology of the nuclear age and how people react to it emotionally, psychologically. What's, what's going on? Well, it varies with the, with the moment. Physician Ira Helfand. Uh, there have been times when people really understood how dangerous things were. Uh, the most important of these probably was the early 1980s when the rhetoric of the Reagan administration and the real uh, tension between the United States and the Soviet Union at that time uh, combined to convince people that nuclear war was, was imminent. And in fact, it was. We came very close in the early 80s to going to war. Uh, and at that time, people did get it in large numbers. There were millions and millions of people around the world who understood that human survival was at stake, that nuclear war was a real and imminent threat, and who took action around it. And there was a huge movement uh, here in the United States, in Europe, uh, even in, in the Soviet Union, uh, calling for the end to the arms race. And that movement was enormously important. Uh, at that time, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were actively building more nuclear warheads every day. And that forward momentum was stopped in large result because of the public movement and the ability of the, the physicians' movement to convince world leaders that their policies were putting the whole planet in jeopardy. But it's very painful to think about this. And as soon as that moment of extreme danger passed, people began to not just forget about this, but to actively put it out of mind. You say that Focusing on this is so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. What exactly is uncomfortable about it? People don't want to think that their that their world can end. 
You know, you look outside on a beautiful day and you don't want to think of everything you're looking at in flames, everyone you know dying, uh, everything you've inherited from your parents and their parents being destroyed, the future of your children being destroyed. This is very tough stuff to think about. But it is the truth. And that's the problem. We somehow have to make ourselves confront this terribly painful reality that if we do not get rid of these nuclear weapons, this is going to happen. And no one likes to think about that. We all have lots of other things that we want to think about. Do people feel powerless in the face of something of such enormous proportion? I think it's a great point, David, because I, I think that is a part of it also. Um, in order for people to, to, be, to effectively take action, they both have to understand that the problem is real, that it's imminent, and to also feel they can do something about it. Maybe those are the three things that have to be there. And at various times to varying degrees, one or more of these things have been missing. In the early 80s, they all came together. There was a large movement. People felt we could get something done, and we actually did. That we were able to penetrate the denial, uh, this, this, this sense of, of denial of what's going to happen, and convince both Reagan and Gorbachev about the reality of nuclear war and what was going to happen if the weapons were used. We briefed both of these leaders, the physicians' movement, and uh, Gorbachev in particular was extremely explicit about this, that it was the conversations he had with physicians talking to him about what was going to happen if weapons were used, and the information he received from climate scientists about the climate effects of nuclear weapons that fundamentally changed his thinking about nuclear weapons and led to his initiatives to stop the arms race in the 1980s. Dr. Helfand says these terrible weapons are not a force of nature and not an act of God, and that determined people can stigmatize them and eliminate them. It's been obvious. I mean, if you look at the information that's been available, it has been acknowledged at one level or another since the beginning of the nuclear era that these weapons could destroy the world. You know, we, we sort of know it, but we don't know it. I mean, there are statements from 1946, uh, right after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that these weapons were capable of destroying the world. We have to do something about them. Um, we have to finally internalize that lesson and make it the starting point for our action. Uh, that's what's got to change. We have to understand that fundamental truth. Nuclear weapons do not make us safe. They endanger our survival. The experience of getting rid of them may give us useful guidelines on how to deal with some of the other problems that we need to deal with. It may create a certain momentum for dealing with some of the other problems uh, that threaten the peace and safety of the world. Um, but that's a very complicated process. There are some people who say, you know, we need to figure out all those problems first, uh, that nuclear weapons are just a symptom, they're not the problem. I disagree with that. Uh, I think that nuclear weapons, while they may be a symptom, uh, are a symptom which needs to be treated before you can deal with the underlying illness. What's the underlying illness? Underlying illness, I think, is our tendency to resolve problems by, by war, um, which, um, you know, nobody's seen a good war for a very long time. This is not an institution that we should be seeking to, to, to foster. We haven't quite learned that lesson yet. And it's not clear to me that we're going to learn it anytime soon. But what we do need to do is make sure that if there are any more wars, and there probably, unfortunately, will be more wars, that they are not fought with nuclear weapons. 
that's kind of a limited goal in a way. Um, but I think it's the one that we need to be working for right now. If we get rid of the nuclear weapons, we'll have the gift of time to deal with the other problems that we need to face. If we don't get rid of them, we're not going to have that opportunity at all. Dr. Ira Helfand, co-president of the Nobel Peace Prize winning International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose and Alan Mattis. Editorial assistance from Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, and Mark Kilstein. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Facing the Unthinkable with Dr. Ira Helfand, is Humankind Program number 218. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.